This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium RPGs. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. Today's episode is part of our mini-series on world-building, a huge topic that's impossible to completely cover in a single episode. So, I'm bringing in a variety of voices and perspectives to deepen our understanding of world-building one piece at a time. Today, I'm talking to Jackson from True Sight RPGs about how world building is a trap, or at least our expectations of it can be. To support this podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review on your app of choice and let us know any insights or questions you have about this episode over on the Darkmoor Podcast community discord. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, Jackson. Thank you for joining me again. How are you today? Hello, John. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm. Uh, this is the fourth podcast we're doing in our little mini series on world building. Here to pick the brains of all of the smart game masters that I know. So just to get and right yet into it, you called it. me. I did. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, Jackson. I love the content that you put on your channel. Um, I think that you have a criminally undersubscribed channel. I, I think that you need a lot more reach. And hey, if I ever figure out the YouTube algorithm, you're going to be one of the first that I figure out how to contact. Um, oh, I, I appreciate that. That That is the final boss, the algorithm. But uh, But yeah, just to kick right off into it. So we have some pretty broad questions to dive into today. So the first one, just to get things rolling, uh, Jackson, what does the term world building mean to you? A trap. Seriously, recently in in the last year, my approach to world building has been more or less don't do it. I looked back on the games that I had really enjoyed and the games that I didn't really enjoy, both as a player and a DM. And one consistent thing that I noticed from my perspective anyway was that the ones that had the most world building or at least the most hard world building were consistently the ones that came up short on the player experience or from the DM side of things like the DM enjoyment. So I think this this expectation that has been worked into the D&D hobby from Tolkien's influence as well as carried on through books like the Dungeon Master's Guide and contributing to DM burnout, I think it's created this really bad expectation that you must be the god of a world and you have to know as much as you can about that world and present it and players are going to love it. Just, you know, field of dreams mentality on this. If you build your world, your players will love it. And that is not always the case. Well, that is a spicy way to kick us off today. I'm loving it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's kind of like the unfortunately named Matt Mercer effect, right? Where you get people into the hobby because of Critical Role and nothing to knock that game. Obviously, it is awesome. It is really successful. 
And if that's what you think all D&D is like, that's going to be a harmful expectation going in because it's going to interrupt your ability to enjoy whatever your dungeon master has prepared for you. Now, I do think that this is a really interesting place to start. So I guess another way to phrase the question then is how would you define world building? So if it's if it's a trap that can create this harmful expectation, you know, what is it so that others may be able to recognize it to avoid the pitfall themselves? Sure. And and I think you make an apt comparison to the Matt Mercer effect, because while I think it's something that is there, I don't think that that comes from a good place. I do think it's kind of a trap, but at the same time, pondering on it, it is absolutely something that you need. You you need to play in a setting and there has to be some world building, even if it's as soft as you can make it. So I think that world building is, you know, we we are playing a game when we're doing a role-playing game. Yes, we can get very theatrical and very emotional with it, but I think when you're world building, you are creating the game board upon which everything else happens. I think that everything that is happening winds up being more important than the game board, but you can't play it if you don't have that board, if you don't have that backdrop. Sometimes, yeah, that means lore. So with that definition, would another way to say it be the agreed upon rules that we know are consistent that we're playing by? I think the agreed upon rules, yeah, that can get muddled a bit with like the the rule. We have the rules of the game out of game the meta game and then we have the rules of the world that we're in how exactly does our magic work here is it purely vancian or is it something completely different um i like that uh, someone brought up in a previous episode is magic part of your blood are you born with it or not or is it something that anybody can learn that is a big formative question and part of your world building that will have major ramifications for not only the conflicts of your world, but each player character coming into the game. Now, that being said, if you're thinking of your world building as the game board, and even that um, example, I remember Michael was the one that brought it up about uh, magic being part of maybe your blood. How closely does your world building have to tie with the mechanics that you have? Because I've definitely played at games where the DM has envisioned this very intricate world with very specific lore but because we were just playing fifth edition the grit or the darkness wasn't really enforced so we were told how scary the world was but when you're only getting hit for six damage and you've got 50 hit points it doesn't feel very dangerous so with that specific frame how closely do you think they're tied i think it does help to tie together uh, but it doesn't have to it doesn't have to blend perfectly. I think it's fine if there are some parallel lines uh, that occasionally crisscross. I, I think one of the strengths of fifth edition and why I'll still be playing it, even if I don't transfer over into one D&D, we'll see where that goes, is because you can play on a different number of worlds. I do. I am a strong proponent of variant rules. Uh, a lot of which that are published that I've played with that I think have helped in a lot of those games, including more more greedy horror stuff. But haven't you heard, Jackson? One D&D is just a code name. The new books we're getting are just 5th edition, just revised 5th edition, not 5.5, just 5th edition. God, I 
this is this is why I I stopped paying attention to every new update that came out, and I just listened to Incendium and Dragon Mind to tell me, oh, okay, that's what they're doing with the Druid. Neat. I can move on. I <laughs> I think there's something to be said for one consistency that I see with a lot of smaller or just non D and D RPGs is they know they are running one specific little thing, one specific tone, and so they stick with that world that is presented in the book. Uh, one game I like is called Simbaroom, and Simbaroom is entirely a package deal of a slightly tweaked D20 system uh, with really crunchy combat that is still quick and snappy. It's, it's, like, it's like the Northman the movie from last year. Like, that's how the combat feels. It's slightly magical, it's in your face, and then it's quick and brutal and done. But everything ties together and meshes with the world that is created. And because of the way that was created so well, if when I've tried to run Simber Room rules away from the world, I'm like, this doesn't work well. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay that we can just play Simber Room in Simber Room. No, for sure. I mean, if we're talking about TTRPGs specifically, the games that I've found that I've more enjoyed are ones that have a specific world with specific mechanics that reinforce it. So if I wanted to play a darker game, I want darker rules to reinforce that tone. There is something to be said about acknowledging the game objects as game objects. Hit points are a good example of that what is two hit points of damage versus 20? There's like a debate of what it could be, but sometimes just to move things along, you get hit for a bunch of damage or something. I don't know. Like it, it to dwell on it doesn't necessarily help facilitate the enjoyment of the experience. Yeah, at um, this point, the argument about what is a hit point or, you know, what are the alignments is is a meme of itself. It is there so that we can have the discussion. You know, to, to move on to another broad question, and this one is making me chuckle already just because I feel like it's that Ron Swanson meme. It's my next question is why does world building matter? And all I can see is Jackson sliding across a note that says it doesn't. <laughs> but I do want to hear your your thoughts on it. So it's a question and it's also an assumptive question that world building does matter. But if you would like to challenge it, you know, feel free. Well, I, and I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not going to say it doesn't. I, I am going to say you have to ask, does it? Because I think, I think the real trap that I'm referring to is not world building because you do need it at some point. The trap is thinking this matters. The, the map of Middle Earth at the front of the book matters so, 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 so much. So that's what I got to spend the most of my time on. And if you're just doing it because you think it has to be done or you're just doing it because, you know, even if you like doing it and that is an enjoyable thing to you, I encourage you to do that. But is that something that is worth forcing on to your players when they come to your game? So ask the question, does it matter? And I... I was in a professional game with clients that I had played with before, and they said, we really love the way the last two years have wrapped up. We want to start something new. So I hosted a session zero for them. And one of the questions that I had was, 
okay, guys, what setting do you want to play in? You know, we got Forgotten Realms, we got we got Eberron, we got Theros, we got The Quiet Year, which I'm excited to talk about later. Uh, what do you want to do? And I had this guy that said, well, Jackson, it doesn't really matter where we play. What matters is the stories that we're going to make. So you just pick whatever. And and I and I remember feeling like I I know I disagree with this in my heart. Like I feel where you're coming from. I think I don't think that's an invalid thing to think, you know, the story is more important than the world. I would even agree with that. But to just say it just doesn't matter at all. I don't think so. So what happened was some of the other players were like, cool opinion guy. We would actually love to try out Theros, which is the D&D Magic the Gathering fantasy Greece world. So we played in Theros and I started to see how the world building did indeed matter. The gods of that world affected the motivations of the monsters and the NPCs. Piety is a rule system that comes from those gods that are integral to the world that affected the player character rules and character sheets. Classic Greek myth that I like delving into affected the monsters that appeared as well as the unique idea that belief and faith on its own is a force that can manifest change in the world. And that all affects how you write the story. And I noticed it not through what I was doing, but how the players started responding and started playing their characters. So by the end of that, I was like, okay, yes, this choice in the world, in the world building that was done, even if most of it came from a book, very much mattered in how everything played out. It is the game board. It is the backdrop. You know, it is the musical scale upon which the symphony of your campaign is going to be played. That is a beautiful poetic metaphor for it. Yeah, I think, and you can correct me at any point if I'm wrong. Um, one of the things I'm hearing that you're you're speaking to is that a lot of times game masters as facilitators of the experience misprioritize where world building exists in relationship to their players. And oftentimes what can happen is they convince themselves in service to their players. They need to create an elaborate world for which to immerse their players in because they hear that immersion is a good thing. I would even challenge that. Does immersion matter? But um, you have to define what immersion is. But anyway, the the idea being that it's, n- it's not the world building that matters. It's how the players relate to the world building. Because I, I do, kind of like what you said, in my gut, there is something that says the world building matters. And observing my own GMing, There is a reason why my most successful game by miles long has the most intricate world building I set up in advance. And also it was less about the world building I did and more about making sure to set up ways that my players felt that they had a meaningful impact on the world. This is a random comparison, but I've been rewatching Samurai Champloo and one of the episodes that I hate and I often skip on rewatches, probably including this one, has to do with Mugen, Jean, and Fu finding mushrooms in the forest and then like finding this weird zombie plot. And the reason why is just because there's no there's no meaning behind it. Like it's not like they changed somebody's life or they learned anything. In fact, the whole episode might have been a hallucination. Nobody really knows what's going on with that one. But if you look at the rest of the episodes, 
no one is looking at Samurai Champloo being like, genius world building. That's what I came here for. But if you look at each individual adventure, whether it was a positive or a tragic change, their participation in the events of a given episode leads to a change in the village that they visit. So I, I almost wonder if world building matters because it's how your players are going to view the experience. I, I don't know. Well, I, I, I think something that you touch on there with, you know, Samurai Champloo, most people would not consider that a a fictional world in the sense that we have, you know, Middle Earth and Westeros. But that is because sometimes world building gets so meshed in with lore. You know, it is not a, a high lore, a high, you know, let us explain the magical rules and metaphysics world. Uh, it's a heightened reality Japan. But yeah, you're exactly right. The villages that you're going around to, the stuff we're doing in them, that is still world building. So when you're looking back on the games that you ran as a professional game master, one of the specific questions I have for you that came to me just now is, was your world building prep different when you knew that people were paying for the experience versus a casual game? And what did that look like if it was? Absolutely. Um, there there was a lot that changed uh, as far as my approach to the game and my my mindset. And, and not all of it was good. A lot of it, I think, came from from way too much high pressure of of like, oh, my God, now I have to do good. People are paying me for this when... I think if I would have done something that I got way used to after doing this for just a few months, even as, oh, if I, if I mostly try to do fun things that I would do with my friends, that's ultimately what people are paying for is that experience and being in a fun, friendly game of D&D. On the other hand, you know, I did want people to feel like they were a part of this, that this you know, not only have you paid money to be part of this, but you have an ownership, you have a stake in this world. Uh, one of the first things that I did was I, I would draw a world map because I was still trying to world build at this point, but I would leave a ton of blank space. I would have like three landmarks. And then when when a kid came up and and i you know said hi to his parents and they asked me questions and we said yes no cannibalism uh i would then hand that kid the marker and say hey what kind of character do you want to play okay you want to play a tabaxi yeah are there tabaxis in your world because sometimes my dm says there's no tabaxis in the world there's there's tabaxis in this world now why don't you show me on the map where the tabaxis are from and suddenly not only did that kid tell me where tabaxis were from he told me that the tabaxis respected a sabbath day he said that tabaxis hold community to be important uh you know he he was letting in some of his own jewish culture into this world all because i handed him a marker yeah well and i think that also goes back to whose job is it to world build because even at the beginning, when you said world building is a trap and it was because of reflections of your own experience, even then there's the assumption that world building is done by the GM first and then mm -hmm. the players are there just to explore it. Whereas when I talked with Joe from Advantage um, and I credit them for a lot of my own paradigm shifts in regard to world building, 
I've always found that the most fun world building is when your players do it, just like you mentioned with this uh, this Tabaxi kid. Did you find that you started doing that more when you shifted from more of a casual relationship to D&D to a professional one? I think that absolutely came from the professional side of things. I think I might have had an inkling of of trying to let my friends more in on what we were doing, but I I was also in a in a funky little Pathfinder group uh where where we were just we were the pathfinder bros and it'd be like bro are we, are we gonna pathfinder who's running it this week i'll run it i'll take it bro i got a cool idea all right let's do it there you know it, it was not these big grand story arcs that i wound up doing more in my professional career which does bring me to uh a good follow-up question so let's let's talk about the pathfinder bro group for a second when you would rotate through who was running the game was it set in a world with continuity or was it just episodic disconnected adventures? Uh, episodic disconnected adventures. I think it I think it would have been better if it would have been uh, if it would have been all one world and we shared DMing. That's an option out of the DMG that I well, I had one experience getting being able to try, but it was a group where there were already two DMs running. Uh, I had just moved into town and they were like, oh, sure, you can help us DM too. And I went to their first little DM summit and I'm like, oh, oh, y'all have the cosmology and everything figured out. I just wanted to do some scenarios. There's not much creative room here for me to get in on anything. So why don't y'all keep doing what you're doing? You're doing great. Uh, we did have a collaborative world in the board game store with our team of five DMs and that uh, we still, we still had the big map with a lot of blank space and that blank space wound up being uh, covered up by within a year, over a hundred kids and adults adding on to their own. And, and what was most refreshing there was it wasn't just, okay, I'm going to put my little dot over here and you're going to put your little dot over here. It was people coming up and asking, ooh, this person has a, a, a mountain city. What's that about? Okay, I, I want to add on to that. I want to start making like the mountain nation of the dwarf and orc alliance over here. So, so suddenly we had this real community that was building up around the games. And even if games weren't running, you could run by the, the giant map on our wall. Or, or you could bring your parent around and say, dad, dad, we were over here. And then we went over here. So that was all very good. But unfortunately, the DMs were spending a lot of time on a shared Google Doc uh, at work and away from work, trying to coordinate everything and figure out on the back end how all of it is actually going to work. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, that's very cool. Like just even hearing the story of a, of a kid being able to show their parent where they adventured. I think just like there's this kind of trap of expecting the game to have very intricate, in-depth world building. There's also a trap of having too much of the game be theater of the mind where there's not like documentation of what we did and visual aids and pointing out this is what the monster looks like rather than just trying to describe it with, oh, yeah. you know, a picture speaks a thousand words. So even like a map can speak to a thousand different adventures. But uh, yeah, no, to to speak on my personal experience for a second, um, in my latest game, because I have 
eight players and they all can contribute to the world building because that's what I do. And I don't run all eight at the same time. It's very rare that happens. It's usually groups of four. But I feel less like a game master and more like a continuity editor where I'm just listening to everyone's ideas and then just trying to make sure that they're not stepping on each other's toes. So <laughs> I do can definitely... Like, do you oh, like that more than than being a a solo creator dungeon master? Oh, I absolutely do. Oh my goodness. I've always felt world building was actually one of my weaknesses. Um, Even my latest campaign, and I'm very open about this, just started as a simplified Eberron where I liked a lot of the things about Eberron, but there are certain weird things going on with Eberron that I didn't feel like needed to be included. So like the the dwarves and their relationship with the Dale here, like I just, it was a lot. I, I can have my dwarves be dwarves. But um, eventually what started happening is my players through their personal lenses had specific things they wanted to flesh out. So for example, I had like a magic academy. I hadn't thought more about it than it's a magic academy, but one player latched onto creating a board of directors and different classes and professors and this really intricate system fleshing out this academy and then it was really cool because when another player would be like, man, we need to look up something at the academy. The the first player could be like a tour guide and be like, let me let me have my character show you the library and describe it. So a lot of the oh, times when I magical. GM, I, I don't even really GM. It's more like I set the scene. And then a lot of times I sit back for like 60, 90 minutes at a time and just let them talk and role play. So, yeah, no, it is it is kind of unique. But a huge part of that is also to set up that kind of world building. Uh, I had to do a lot of work of being able to set up the boundaries and the guidelines of how we're all going to respect each other's creative space and the the tools and the communication. That was more what I focused on than the actual like, quote unquote, world building part. But because of that, the world building happened on its own. So I think that's not most people's experience, but Jackson, I know you said world building is a trap, but I am curious from your perspective, what do you consider examples of strong world building? You know, I, I am a big sucker for Dragon Age. I think that there's some some very good world building there. Uh, you you have to get deep into it, but one thing that helped the the first Dragon Age game Origins was when you pick your your race class combo, you you play through that little backstory chapter chapter before the game proper starts. So there's eight little pre-games that you go into, and that very much changes it. And I I think that I I took some of that to heart whenever I am whenever I'm introducing new people into the game, especially giving them a sense that you know, their character has a stake in this world. You marked it on the map. You are coming in not only with what you put on the map and what you have on the character sheet, but your story of how you got here. Uh, so I really like Dragon Age, although I do think it falls into... There's an Ursula K. Le Guin quote that I wish I had up in front of me right now, but it basically boils down to her reflecting on fantasy decades after writing the first Earthsea novels and saying, what are we doing here? We continue to have 
you know, not to call you out, but like, here is my magic academy. Here are the dwarves and they hate this other race. Here's the undead army. Here's the dark lands with the dark lord. Why do we feel the need to continue making the same thing over and over? And that's one where Dragon Age has some weaknesses is it's very approachable as a video game for people who want to experience uh, that classic in an RPG. But would I want to read a lot of books in Dragon Age? Would I want to try play in the Dragon Age world? I don't think so. So I do like some stuff that is not necessarily subversive. I liked how you pointed out that sometimes somebody can be so subversive that it's like, ah, it's, it's that guy, the one you don't think it would be. Next question. Let's see, I love the Stormlight Archive, which I think is too obscure for me to really talk about. And I really like Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning which may be slightly less obscure. It is a game, it is a wonderful RPG that came out the same year as Skyrim, which means that a lot of people did not hear about it or play it because Skyrim existed. Uh, but it was actually made by, in part by R.A. Salvatore, who also wrote some of the Dritzt and uh, Forgotten Realms novels. And while I'm not a fan of Forgotten Realms, I really like Amalur because I'm a sucker for Fae. Yo, all right, I'm going to come back to that. Okay. <laughs> I am the opposite, but it's mostly because I'm not as smart as them, and it's an insecurity thing. But uh, you mentioned that you don't like Forgotten Realms. Let's let's dig into that a little bit. So what is it about Forgotten Realms that you don't like? And, and full disclosure, like, I, you know, I am not a Forgotten Realms expert quite like I would consider myself a D&D expert. And part of that has to do with, I came into D&D from Pathfinder. You know, I got into fifth edition where you've pointed out they present Forgotten Realms as an option. It might be the the default option, but it is still an option. You can play in, uh, you can play in Eberron or Theros, or I think there was actually a big push for homebrew your own world. Um, but anytime I start getting deep into the lore i just don't like it i am just unimpressed i think a lot of it falls into that ursula k Le Guin thing of we're just kind of retreading a lot of things that tolkien did uh i think what really got me what really made me say i i do not like this and i i will not run games in it is stuff with drow and some of that is sort of political sensitivities, I guess you could say, you know, I do not like that we have a well-represented matriarchy uh, of, of dark-skinned individuals, and the thing that they opted to base their society around was slavery and demon worship. That is a choice. But, but even if I, were, if I were to take whatever sensibility, real-world sensibilities aside and break that down to its, its base elements, do I think that is an enjoyable thing to play in? No, not really. Uh, I, I really don't like the continuation of, of racial animus in the game and Forgotten Realms it, from my, you know, maybe may, not surface level, but, you know, slightly, you know, six feet down uh, perspective. I, I don't think there's a lot there that's great and promotes better gameplay. I think it is a, a good core, a good default to build your game up from.
Welgrimton. Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in Arc 3 of Advantage, a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app. But to come back to Faye, because uh, you mentioned that at the very beginning of this whole thing that the games that you reflect on that you least enjoyed had the most amount of hard world building and so that seems to suggest that you like a little bit more of soft world building what is it about soft world building that you enjoy more i i enjoy when you get to play the game focusing on the thrill of the next decision more than making sure you are adhering to the rules, be that the the game rules, the number rules, the mechanics, or the rules of uh, the fictional setting that you're in. So if you have soft world building where you don't have, you know, maybe there are some guardrails, but there's not, you know, there's not there's not railroad tracks. There's not firm, hard boundaries in the sand. Um, I think you have a little more freedom to make interesting choices rather than I am a lawful good paladin of Torm. Therefore, my character's choice is this. I have removed my own real life agency from my role playing game. So the reason I ask it like that is because, again, you mentioned the Fae and I've always found with the Fae and the Fey Wild as a, as an extra planar space that it has this real interesting balance between hard and soft world building. Soft world building in that the plane seems malleable in a lot of ways that it doesn't necessarily play by the same rules or physics as you would experience with a material plane. And also in real world mythology, the Fae have this underlying uh, <laughs> unknowable code of ethics and laws and all these very almost incomprehensible systems about them that to me would speak to hard world building in that there are hard lines and codes and hospitalities. And so I I'm just interested on your personal perspective of the Fae and why you like them so much. What is your Queen Titania like? Mine is a skank. Um, very, very, very true to Fey lore. Very, very good mythology. Okay. Interesting. I love that. My queen Titania is an absolute drag queen of justice and the queen of the summer court. Thank you very much. And the thing that I love about that is that I would believe both of our queen Titanias uh, none of them really break that far away from like what's in a published fifth edition book, to my knowledge. There, there are some hard rules that like, hey, there's a Fae, Queen Titania. 
she exists and stuff, but like how that manifests exactly, we kind of get some play with. So that's what you like about the Fae is the, is the amount of creative spin that you have on them. Yeah. And, and that my players bring in, I find that Warlock is, was an alarmingly uh, popular choice, especially in kids games. Uh, and Arch Fay was kind of the go-to. Actually, no, no, it was probably a tie between Arch Fay and Arch Fiend. But anyway, for both of those, well, it works for Fiend too. Like, okay, tell me which who your Fay is. Tell me who your Fiend is. All right, I pick Oberon. All right, what does that mean? Uh, I pick Oberon. No, you you've you've sold you've sold your soul or, or something, you've made a fairy pinky promise to Oberon, why is that important to your character? What does Oberon mean to you? And then I, the player can opt out and they can say, I don't know, Jackson, tell me what Oberon is. And I'm like, okay. Um, or, or they can say, uh, well, I, I think that Oberon is kind of a, a protector of nature and maybe he, he cares about where the Fae intersects with uh, our world. And and also he's Ron Swanson. Like, it can be a lot of things. Yes, we, we have these little rules. Uh, there's a Titania, there's, there's Oberon. Everybody's going to have different levels of their own little fairy Game of Thrones intrigues happening. But what those actually are in your world, in your game, that can change. No, it's it's so funny because I used to really shy away from the Fae. And mostly it's because a lot of the popular stories that I was familiar with were about tricking the Fae and how mischievous they were and how they could play these word games of, I only have to stick by exactly what I said, but there are like secondary and tertiary meanings behind that. And I, John, hate word riddles which is ironic because I was an English major, but I just, I can't, I'm so literal. <laughs> well, and so that's, that... that's interesting to me because that matches up with how Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes writes devils to be. So there again, going back to where you started, like what even is law and chaos when it comes to these, you know, how hard really is the world building that we've been given? Yeah, and I just... <laughs> I had a personal discomfort with that story type, which is why I haven't run a lot of devil contracts either. And then it turns out that three out of my eight players had some kind of fae backstory. So they kept bringing it to the table. But again, that's why I've fallen in love with making them do the world building because you're so interested in it. You tell me about it. <laughs> and it's led to some very interesting conversations and very interesting dynamics. So what are some techniques you have for implementing world building in a game session? Uh, first off, the, the open map and, and handing someone a pin so that they know here you're making your mark. Uh, two would be dungeon tiles. I think if you're playing on a, a physical table or, and, and you're making maps, or really even if you're on something like Roll20, there's ways to kind of make little squares that your players can drag around. Uh, but that's the key part, is not I'm using my dungeon tiles so that I can slowly place them out, and here's what you find around this corner. It's me saying, okay, Orc Barbarian, your turn in the corner to see what's up 
next, I'm going to hand you two dungeon tiles and I want you to pick the one that you think should be next. That's, that's kind of a micro world building. Although you can add a layer onto that and, and you can say, I want you to tell me what kind of room is this? Which dungeon faction is in this room? And you'll be like, uh, I, I would actually like this to be related to my ancestral barbarian backstory. I want to find something in here for that. And I'm like, all right, I can riff on that. The Quiet Year is a beautiful, beautiful resource. So this is a game that is really more kind of a, a creative world building experiment uh it's by avery alder and his company buried without ceremony and what it does is you start with a blank map and everyone starts drawing on you know okay here's the mountains here's the river i'm gonna put down a canyon and you're going around the table and then you start drawing cards and that card will have a scenario on it like you know your people are growing hungry how will they respond to this new information? And, and as you keep going with this through a year in the game world, by the end of that, you have created not only a map that you've drawn lots of stuff on, but a backstory. And from that backstory, people can start saying, I, I liked that thing we did when we had to start the wild hunt because we were all hungry. My character is going to be a ranger that followed that tradition two years later. And I think this was most popularly done by the McElboys in the Adventure Zone, but it's been done by a few other podcasts. Item cards. Uh, these are popular, whether they're index cards drawn up by the Dungeon Master or, you know, something store-bought that has, you know, here is Flame Tongue. It's on a card. The front of it has a picture. The back of it has the rules for it. Now I can hand this to you and get it. Uh, I started doing something where I would hand my players the full deck of magic cards at session zero. And I would say, pick 10, pick 10 that you would like to see, pick 10 that might be important for your character or for your background to get. And if you want, you can take a wet erase marker and you can write, you know, this is an elven artifact, or this comes from uh, the Underdark or the Feywild. You know, not just that it is a thing that is a series of stats, but there is story behind this. Now I shuffle that up, and rather than rolling on a random item table, I'm pulling cards that have pieces of the world that you've put back out into it. Uh, magic cards are useful, and I mean Magic the Gathering, um, and how every Magic player has draft chaff. 10 cent cards that are never going to make their way into the decks, you can use those in your uh, your D&D game. You can use land cards uh, and similarly hand these out to your players and say, I want you to pick some lands that you want to travel in and then hand them back to you. And again, you can use that as your random hex crawl pile rather than rolling on a D8 table. Or you can start piecing that together. Heck, you could make a tack board with a hex map and cut up some magic land cards and start putting out and drawing what the lands look like. Uh, and finally, my last tool that has been a huge, huge impact that I've started using in all my games and that almost every player is responsive to is plot points. 
that uh, to, to Wizard's credit actually came from the Dungeon Master's Guide uh, in the 200 off forgotten uh, variant rules. So you can use story points to kind of, you know, make a twist of fate or say I'm the DM now. And where I've worked with this is I've worked it into inspiration points. You know, you're winning inspiration through good role play, good teamwork, pushing the story forward. And if you want, you can use that inspiration to get advantage on a die roll. Or if you want, you can tell me something cool about the world. And that could be in this moment of combat where, uh, dang it, we're, we're stuck across the bridge. I want to use a story point to say that you know, the goblins that built this underground passageway had a series of bridges and they're falling apart and one of them happens to fall right now where we need it to be. Like, cool, dope, I'm okay with that. You just you just built upon the world and you made this scenario more interesting and you push the action forward. I'm down. Also, give me your inspiration point for the night. That's your one use. Um, you know, or at the end of the night, you you can say, ooh, I, I've actually developed on what what you asked about Oberon before. And I want to say that my warlock patron Oberon is actually at odds with their warlock patron Glazia. And I want to see where that goes. And I say, interesting. Let me get back to you on that. I can write with this. I can work with this. Yeah, no, just to like bring it back, anytime you can let the players in on the world building especially with something as impactful as like an in the moment kind of thing. I've always found they get excited about that too. (laughs) This is a random thing that I thought about. If you were to think about like, I guess the different campaigns you've run, I don't know if you want to call them that or scenarios or adventures on average, how long do they last in terms of real world time? Like, do they span a few weeks, months, years? Well, Gosh, I got to think about that. So the average is skewed a bit towards, you know, most of the games that I have ran have been professional. Um, And most of those games were five-day summer camps with very few exceptions where I would have the same group of kids two weeks in a row. Uh, Most of those are five-day games. Um, The ones that I like, the ones that I often reflect back on, those are usually lasting, I'll say six months. That seems like a healthy amount of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So for those six month games, what was the proportion of world building you prepped before versus the world building you kind of discovered in the moment? In 90. So 90% you discovered in the moment, yep. pro- like with your players as you go. When you did the 10% prep, what kind of scale were you prepping for? Like, did you know ahead of time that this was might be a six month campaign or was it more like ah, the campaign seems to come to a natural close around this six month period? My main goal is to have the best session one possible. And then if session two winds up being the players coming together and saying, we love that, let's do something completely different when we start our real true blue campaign, that's fine. Uh, and if they say, yeah, let's keep going with this and we'll play it out for a year, that that's also fine. So that, that first session, that initial 10% is how much prompt work can I do? How many tools can I put down on the table? 
to empower the players to tell me what they want. Do you then kind of determine the the scale of your game from there? And by scale, I guess I do mean geographical, because it's one thing to, you know, have a campaign take place in a city versus like traveling from kingdom to kingdom uh, versus just settling in one little village. That's a really nice question. I think that that gets more determined by kind of a vibe for what how what kind of traveling the players want to do. You know, do I catch that everyone likes hex crawls and doing long-term travel well that world is going to be a lot bigger scope than the ones who say we want to stay in water deep and have a heist yeah so it's something that you kind of discover when you start to get to know the players a little bit more before i let you go do you have any concluding thoughts about world building that you'd like to share um, I, I really appreciate how, how you kind of uh, gave some healthy pushback on, on me saying that world building is a trap because it's more the expectations that are a trap. But, uh, you know, I will also remind that in, in Dungeons and Dragons and a lot of other fantasy RPGs, figuring out and breaking traps and getting around them is part of the fun. So it is there. It is intimidating. It is possible to to get it wrong, very much so. And I think that's why you're doing all these episodes focusing on it. But I do think as long as you're aware that the trap is there, it is very possible to get through it and have an amazing time with your friends. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium RPGs. For more content by us, check out our YouTube channel with the link in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Sugar, spice, and everything dice. These were the ingredients selected to create the most badass ladies in all of Arcandrum, each treated to a vision of the possible destruction that could befall the world if they did not stop it. Thus, the dream team was born. Crit Like a Girl is a cinematic podcast featuring the adventures of four strong women and an adorable little owl. Join us every other Monday, and come see how we, Crit Like a Girl, 